Welcome back to AMI's two-part podcast, Compliance Coffee Talk, the board edition. I'm Bethany Hengsbach, Managing Director at AMI. With me again are Carrie Robinson and Audrey Harris. Briefly, I'll introduce uh, my two guests today, uh, who were also our guests on part one, just so that they're familiar to you. Carrie, who, among other accolades, is the former Revlon Inc. General Counsel, as well as IBM Vice President and Assistant General Counsel for Investigations in Cybersecurity. She's also a former AUSA from the Southern District of New York and Big Law External Counsel. Audrey Harris is my AMI colleague and fellow managing director, former co-chair of Mayor Brown's global anti-corruption and FCPA practice, former chief compliance officer for BHP and former white collar partner, Kirkland and Ellis. So you'll remember in our first coffee compliance talk board edition, or I should say compliance coffee talk board edition, we talked about legal compliance in the board new roles and expectations in a world of expanding stakeholders and emerging risks. We left off talking about some of the biggest developments in the way GCs and CCOs interact with management and the board. Audrey, you mentioned at the end what you referred to as the commercial case for compliance. So for this second segment of our coffee talk, we're going to call it boards, management, and the commercial case for compliance. So, Audrey, we'll start off with you. What's the commercial case for compliance, and how has it changed the board and management compliance relationship? Well, in our last segment, we were talking about all these expanding risks and these expanding stakeholders. Um, but there is one positive side, we'll say, from the legal or compliance um, uh, area uh, to this, which is it's really creating a commercial case for compliance. So what I would say before is that when I first started my career in this, it was a lot about, I'll call it jingling handcuffs. Time the regulators expect this. Um, this is what uh, you will, get. there are jail terms, there are fines, you must do X, Y, Z because of this. I will say that's really changed. Um, and you can even see it in the way in-house counsel and the way I would, even as an external, um, approach a lot of issues. Of course, we talk about what those regulatory expectations are, but often I found myself starting with what the commercial case is, how um, not you know, addressing these expanding issues or these compliance issues or these legal issues or risks that are out there actually have a bottom line impact. And I'll say that that was one of the reasons that I actually went to be a CCO. And I know both of you have heard me say this before, but um, I said I'd never be a CCO. I said it was the worst job in the world and that I would never take it. Um, I had seen a lot of CCOs die um, bad professional deaths. Um, and one of the reasons that I took the CCO role was because I think the environment we're in right now is changing and that you could possibly move the legal and the compliance functions from just being thought about as you know, a cost center to not maybe a profit center but perhaps a value center. Um, so really that these issues, as Carrie pointed out to me before, are not non-financial. These are financial issues with real financial impacts to the company. So starting with those and thinking about what those, those potential commercial impacts are and approaching those with your, your compliance constituents, whether they be the business or the board, first, as well as talking about those regulatory expectations, is really change things. 
Um, and I, one of the things I like to talk about with my team when I was in-house and, and still do to this day is that we really have three roles, right, um, in compliance. We are the uh, guides, we are the problem solvers, and we are the gatekeepers. And really, we should be spending you know, 80% of our time, if we can, in those first two um, to have the visibility and the credibility to do that last one when we need to. But also, those different roles, we bring different commercial value depending on which one of those roles we're playing. And it really depends on when the business brings compliance in. So this is something that I really observed. If the business brings compliance and legal into the discussions really early on, on a transaction or a strategy or a new market entry, they can really be that guide. And they can look at those risks, those different legal and compliance risks, just like you're looking at those financial risks. And you can work those in and guide those from the very beginning. And you can have the most commercial impact um, and really bottom line impact for your company. If the business brings you in a little bit later, when there's still you know, questions on a particular path, go this way or this way, um, then you become the problem solver. You can still really have a great commercial and risk mitigation impact, but not quite as much as if they bring you in at that early time and that strategy when you're the guy. And then finally, you know, your least commercial, but most regulatory um, impact is when you are that gatekeeper. And that's usually when they bring you in or they engage with you at a later period of time. So this was part of what I have seen um, change within the compliance and the legal functions is this idea that you can have this commercial case and how you can work with your business to really show them that and how they work with you is actually as the you know, legal or compliance in-house is really going to impact the commercial value that you're able to contribute and what your role is in that space. So that was my, that's my theory on commercial compliance. And it's really kind of taken a completely different spin than, you know, when I started this path and when I started in this area, you know, 20 some years ago, that's for sure. I, I agree completely. And I think we have all probably jingled a lot of handcuffs in our time. Um, and so the evolution that you're describing, I think is, is spot on. Carrie, what about you? What does it mean for you in terms of commercial compliance when working with management or advising the board? So I, look, I, I agree with what Audrey said. I, I think, um, I think the dialogue has changed, but I think it was a necessary and a, and a beneficial change, right? Because I, I think, yeah, yeah, as a lawyer, whether you're the general counsel or, or the chief compliance officer, you have to be user friendly with your client. You have to know how to speak with the business. You know, mm -hmm. it starts with taking the time to understand the business and then, and then taking the time to understand who your client is and what's the best approach. What's the best way to educate about an issue if the client isn't already savvy about a particular uh, risk issue. And I don't think school marming uh, and threatening is, is an effective approach. I mean, sometimes it's necessary to be a little more stern and a little, and, and, you know, you know, uh, a sound, uh, not an alarm, but, a, but a warning, but for the most part, you know, you want to speak in English. Um, you want to be a part of the conversation. You know, you want your business management to value, you know, not only as their legal advisor, but somebody who um, has good business judgment. Um, 
And I think you're a much more effective counselor. Uh, and I think your client is more likely to come back to, to ask for advice and include you at the outset of discussions um, if, if that's the that if that's the relationship that you develop with them rather than being sort of the horny, you know, school marmy uh, personality. Um, I also look, I think it's, it's, um, you know, one way to prevent from coming across as, you know, somebody who's always flagging risk and always sounding the alarm is again, you know, we've, we talked about this last session, but to understand the risk profile of the company also understand that perfection is impossible and there are different levels of maturity at different companies. Some are very much evolving. Some are more evolved. And so when you understand what the higher risks are of the company, you're not doing that in a vacuum. You're doing that with your business. Um, then, you know, you have to create a little list. You have to prioritize. You know, what are the areas that I'm going to focus on? It doesn't mean you ignore the other areas and it doesn't mean those areas drop off your list. But you have to set priorities. Um, and sometimes things that you've put lower on the list become your priority because something happens that, that moves it up. But I think if you have that open dialogue with your management, that that's what you're doing, that you're evaluating risk and you're not you're not trying to frighten or alarm, but you're trying to educate. Uh, and together, you know, you partner with the business to appreciate the risk and then make decisions about how to allocate resources and time to addressing those area of risks. And I, I, so I would say be more proactive, less reactive. And I think it's really important to ask questions right? because you can't really assess risk if you don't understand things. So ask questions. Don't be afraid to and listen to the answers. I was once asked, um, what's your, uh, I was once told that any um, investigation can actually come down to one question. Why? You can just continually ask why, why, why? Um, but I think <laughs> that's an underused uh, question when it comes to your business on these and understanding their why um, as to whatever circumstance you're in um, is yeah, is imperative. Uh, and it's something uh, that, you know, we, we as lawyers and compliance professionals can sometimes be like, um, no, you do it this. Um, but to ask their why, that can actually let you become that problem solver, that guide, because you can get there in different ways, right? Um, what's your why? Uh, is And why are we doing X, Y, Z? Uh, critical question. I think that trust is so important too. And, and I know from my experience advising boards as external counsel that, um, you know, you can really only say the thought, the sky is falling one time. Um, and it, it, it must indeed be falling because um, if you're just running around like chicken little all the time, um, you're really going to have a difficult time convincing anyone to take uh, action when necessary, um, when action is really necessary. So, um, Audrey, you know, you and I have talked about the difference in external counsel advising on a specific case um, versus questions that senior management or board members often ask in the in-house capacity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think we, we touched on this last time when it comes to those questions that I think all the GCs and CCOs are very familiar with. Um, and the term that we often hear is, um, how can I see around that corner? Right. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have that crystal ball that we were talking about. So sometimes things are really unforeseen. But I will say that that's kind of the difference but that when I moved into the in-house role versus the external, it was rarely a question of can we defend against X? Um, it was more a question of 
how do we prevent um, you know, XYZ from happening? Um, so that's really when you started turning to also you know, not just da you know, data, we talked about data as well, um, using you know, leading indicators in this space, but also learnings from everywhere around you. Um, so I would say for GCs and, and for CCOs, um, one thing that's imperative is to really keep your eyes on the horizon, not only within your industry, um, but within different areas and different subject matters, risk subject matters that might be um, you know, relevant to you, whether or not it's ESG or another um, particular uh, risk area in another industry. And what can you learn from them? I would say some of the mo this most effective um, things that, uh, that I did in-house and I've worked with as an external other in-house doing is take Taking, you know, public information about when a competitor or someone else is under, you know, either scrutiny by a regulator or the subject of a news expose and saying, could this happen to us? Because I'll say, you know, the one of the most, what I can't remember who said it anymore, but the most dangerous phrase um, in a boardroom is that won't happen to us or that's always the way we've done it. Um, so those two ones, but it couldn't happen to us. Instead, really looking at and saying, what are either the root causes or other things here and what can we learn from those? Um, not just within your industry, but even outside of your industry, whether or not you're looking at bellwethers like banking and healthcare, um, you, they may seem very different than say mining or high tech, but I guarantee that you can learn something from them um, and using that benchmarking to really help inform what you see as those trends um, and combining that with your data really critically important to answering that question um, that you know the in-house often gets, which is how can I see around that corner? What about you, Carrie? What's your perspective on helping GCs and CCOs help management and boards see around these corners? Well, I agree with what Audrey said about keeping yourself well informed and educated so that you're 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 aware of emerging risks, but you know I don't want to sound like a, a broken record, but it's sort of the same theme, which is you, you need to know your business and you need to know the risks in your business, and you need to know how to speak with your board and with your senior management. And so the more you're having discussions and being proactive about that risk, the more um, confidence they're going to have that you know if an issue occurs, that you're building a governance uh, program, that you have policies in place, that you're continuing to educate in those areas and you're continuing to try um, and prevent uh, situations from occurring in, in those areas of risk. Look, and then we talked about uh, several times about the unexpected, but I think the more transparent and open you are with your management and with your board, and you're sharing the important facts on a continual basis, they, they're going to develop a relationship of trust and confidence in you. Um, so, so when an issue comes up that you maybe didn't anticipate or it's, or it's an area that you did anticipate and the issue happened anyway, which is, of course, you know, it happens all the time. Um, you're, they're not second guessing your judgment and they're not criticizing you. They're working with you because they know that your eye was on that ball and they know you were trying to help them see around the corner. But, you know, and now they know that you're helping address the issue and trying to mitigate the, the damage uh, to, to the company. So I guess what I would say also is like, don't spitball. You know, if something happens or if there's an issue that you're just not familiar with, like, don't make it up. Learn about it and and be genuine and credible with your management and with your board and they will trust you. 
Yeah, such good advice. Don't be afraid to say that you don't know, but that you'll learn. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to pivot a little bit and, and talk about, you know, we've been discussing emerging risks a lot. We talked a lot about uh, cyber and ESG as emerging risks in the last session. I know all of us on this call sort of cut our teeth in the anti-corruption and FCPA world. Um, collectively, I, I, I just can't even imagine the experience that we all have in that sphere. So um, trying to leverage that a bit, what do you think, um, what are some lessons that general counsels and CCOs can learn from that anti-corruption wave back in the days when um, the FCPA went from the, you know, incredibly, um, uh, you know, sort of arcane statute on the books in 77 that nobody had even heard of to all of a sudden, um, you know, the question that every CCO and board member was asking their GC and their and their CCO. Bob, do you want to take this first? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I totally will. Like, I think, and again, I'm I'm biased, as you know, when it comes to uh, coming up in that background, but I think there's lots of things that we can learn from it. Um, and particularly uh, when you're when you're sitting in-house or you're looking at your program, um, there's so much you can leverage, especially if you have invested in a strong anti-corruption program. Um, don't think about it as a pillar. Again, often we have all these other risks coming in, whether or not it's human rights or expert controls. And one of the bigger risks I see in big companies is I call it the Frankenstein of compliance um, because they kind of bolt on all these different teams. Um, and then there's some people out there saying, I'd love to have that problem. I only have two people. Um, but either way, one of the things you can do is really what I call map, align, and leverage. Um, and one of them is truly map your business, know your business, as Carrie was talking about, but map what you do well. And so if you have a strong anti-corruption program, and that's what I really focus on, but you may have a strong HSE program, health and safety program. You may have, you know, another strength and a really strong supply contracting program. Map that out and see what's there and what it's really looking at. Um, and then really align it to what your risks are for those other um, risk subject matters. So when you have anti-corruption, for instance, and you're th thinking about, well, we've got our due diligence program, we may have a feed coming in for adverse media and all these other things, those can all be aligned and leveraged for these new risks that are coming in, particularly around, for instance, human rights or trade and export controls and beneficial ownership or KYC issues. So each of these things really look, what is our, what does our business map and business systems look like? What does our strongest, um, you know, risk mitigation or control framework look like? And then how does that align against these other risks? And what can we leverage? And at the end of the day, it also helps, I think, not only you know, when you're trying to build from scratch and do more with less, but also helps those Frankenstein programs where they may actually be creating more risk, collateral risk, I call it, um, by having all those, having them communicate together and align really then can you know, not only reduce and make things more efficient, 
but it can also reduce that collateral risk that's happening in that space. So those are some of the things that I really like to focus on, especially in program reviews um, and what I like to focus on in-house uh, because it really, it, it can be very overwhelming, all these subjects um, that are out there, all these different risk areas. Um, so really learning and building on what you already have in that space is key. These are the kinds of questions that make me um, very happy that I never went in-house. <laughs> you guys are, uh, you guys have experience that um, that I don't, and uh, it's conversations like these that, that make me um, aware of why I chose that. Um, so I, I love what you said, Audrey, about the leverage because, and, and also using existing programs as a starting point, right? Because I, when I talk to um, in-house compliance folks, particularly given how tough it is to come by uh, compliance budget and FTEs, right? To, to say stand up an ESG program or stand up a human rights program or, you know, is just, it, it's overwhelming. So I love what you said about leverage. Carrie, um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, a lot of it is very dependent on the company and the size of the company. In many companies, you really you're, you're using the same teams to um, to tackle different risks, right? And you're building off of what you've already built in one area. So, with the anti-corruption area, you're you're building uh, expertise, building out expertise and focus on other areas like ESG and cyber. And in other companies that are very large. You have separate dedicated teams, and then you have the issue that Audrey is speaking about. You have to make sure everybody speaks with one another, right? Because if you're not sharing what you're learning in one space, which they over they they interact and overlap so much, uh, then you're not gonna, you're not doing a very good job being proactive and identifying risk in your company if you have different uh, constituent stakeholders who aren't speaking with one another. So, like I would, my laundry list there would be, you know, um, what we spoke about earlier, which is stay educated and informed about risk, right? Right. Be proactive about addressing the issues. You know, have a strong team and a strong internal team, and if necessary, augmented by a strong uh, external team to be able to address those issues. Understand, you know, um, where your weaknesses are, and you have, you know, companies are going to have to make a decision whether they can allocate additional resource. Um, to focus on an emerging risk. And part of that is you have to do an analysis of how great a risk is that risk for my company compared to some of the other issues um, and, and, uh, and risks that I'm focused on, right? And so I think sometimes you really do have to leverage a small team to work on all of these different areas. You know, build a durable governance structure for all mm -hmm. of this and then pressure test it. And I would say, again, I'll put a plug in for technology to the extent that you have some, some, even a little investment capability, invest in technology because data is really at the center of so many of these sort of crisis or risk situations, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and for data, the better kept, you know, the better protected, the better off. Well, and look what the government's doing in this space, right? Um, they're leveraging. Uh, so if you take and you look at 
what you know the criminal divisions um, you know, and guidance on an effective compliance program is, or the, you know, the fraud sections XCPA guidance on effective compliance programs looks very similar to things issued by you know um, DOJ antitrust or even the CFTC. Um, these concepts are are very similar, so they are leveraging there and they're learning those lessons and as to what a, a program and expectations are going to look like. They're also learning the lesson about communication. Right. So their functions uh, or equivalent of functions, their different agencies are working together in um, in a more holistic way. And their jurisdictions are working together um, cross you know, international cooperation in these elements are working together. So it's really um, often, you know, someone asks a question on uh, on something on, uh, say, a, uh, an, an ethics limit or something. And you can always say, well, what does the government do? Like, you know, let's look up what the, what their requirements are in this area. Per diem, and, right? We've all used that per diem in our <laughs> compliance program. Yeah, we have. And so it's that kind of looking at the government, the government's using that leverage and that cooperation and that cross is the same thing that we should do. So we've been talking about uh, commercial and compliance in the same sentence. And I actually, I really love this question. Um, what's the difference between legal advice and a business decision? And how do you approach that with management? Harry, I'll throw this one to you first. So as we've discussed, you know, uh, lawyers have to understand the business um, and to and to understand a business problem, right? And they also have to know what the legal issues are and understand how the the facts and the situation, um, uh, how the law applies to those situations, right? Um, a lot of conversations are a mix of both business and legal discussions, right? And you do obviously for privilege reasons and all of those, which is an entirely different podcast, you do have to be able to differentiate for your client when you're really giving them legal advice and when you are, you know, being uh, being more pragmatic and, and business minded. But again, you know, you do have to know your place, right? You are the lawyer for the company. I think the better business partner you are to your management, the more effective you are and the more likely you are to be being included in discussions and to be sought after to have those discussions, right? But you do have to you know, you do have to be able to set, differentiate your role so that when you are giving legal advice, it's clear that that's what you're giving. You know, there are very few situations that I experienced in my career where I, you had to tell a client no. You know, I mean, very rarely do you have to do you have to do that. And the situation where you would is if something is isn't uh, legal, and not because your client wants to commit a crime, but they may not appreciate that what they're doing is unlawful. And then there are areas where you're not saying no, but you're standing up a little firmer because it's such a high area of risk for legal risk for them, let's say enforcement risk, that you just want to make it clear that they understand that, that if they if they tread in that space, it's not without tremendous potential downside impact, right? But so often the discussions that you're having with management um, boil down to business decisions. You know, they they come down to financial decisions or reputational decisions. Um, and so long as your client understands what the legal issues are and understands the risk attendant with the different ways that you can proceed, um, and as long as it's not unlawful or just so high risk that you just, you're not going to fall asleep at night um, if you haven't sort of, you know, gotten a little bit more, you know, inflamed, um, it really does boil down to 
a business decision. And if you're a good counselor for your client, you're not just saying to them, oh, this is a business decision, I'm hands off. I think you do have to tell them this is a business decision, but they have to know that you're in their corner, that you're not backing away from them. You're their counselor, you're supporting the decision. And if it comes with risk, and if the, co- the company uh, draws a lawsuit or an investigation or whatever it is, you know, you're going to be there assisting the company to get through uh, that situation. And there's some, you know, we didn't talk about this, but uh, since some of our uh, discussion is about boards, there are some decisions, obviously, that are not just management decisions. If they're so material, um, some decisions may actually require, after a thoughtful discussion with management, um, a discussion and and uh, potentially an approval from, from the board. And I think- yeah, and I would add to that, too, that I think the commercial case for compliance means um, also that I think compliance can help foster new revenue streams, for example, instead of just being, you know, Dr. No all the time. If, if the business wants to get into, you know, a risky geographical area, for example, compliance can be a real partner and say, let's figure out how to do this. You know, let's get you where you want to be. Audrey, you were going to say something before I cut you no, off. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, I love the idea of um, compliance programs being an enabler um, for strong com- strong companies with strong compliance programs being an enabler um, to really bring uh, you know, a lot of the pluses of those corporations to jurisdictions and to industries that maybe might have been outside of the risk threshold without that compliance program, without that compliance culture. Um, and that is so very important, I think, um, particularly in this global um, kind of dynamic environment environment that we're in right now. Um, But for me, it was always when uh, going back to the question of business decision versus um, uh, versus legal, that when I really knew someone trusted me or I had a good relationship with the business is when they when you do say, well, legally, this is in your explaining and educating. And then they look and go, yeah, from a practical business point, what do you think, Audrey? Um, And it's like, now you have, I mean, you're making those distinctions, as Carrie talked about, as you should and everything, but you really now know that you are a trusted advisor um, in every way with them. Um, so it's a it's a nice kind of a tipping point that you reach uh, where you're like, they're actually asking uh, what you think because they think you know the business, as Carrie was talking about, knowing the business is so important there, right? That mm-hmm. they actually think you know it well enough that they want to ask you about it. Um, which I think is a, is a real compliment. Absolutely. And, and not without risk too, right? Those taking those hats on and off. Carrie, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I'm so help me out on, on what it's taking not- the hats on the risk of taking the hats on and off. No, in terms of how do you navigate when you're, if, if you're, for example, a general counsel who's being asked for business advice, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you navigate taking your general counsel hat off and saying, well, now I'm not acting in my you know, role as general counsel and giving legal advice. I'm answering your question from a business standpoint. Or do you even have to say that? Well, I don't think you always have to say that. But what you just said is what I have often found myself saying, which is I am, you know, I'm really delighted that you're asking me this question. You're you're seeking my my business judgment, but understand, you know, ultimately, and I'm happy to I'm happy to weigh in um, as part of the full equation that you're assessing. But ultimately, this decision resides with you and not and not with me. I'm not giving you legal advice and I'm not guiding you to do something or not. Well, because one of the things 
you know, companies have a tendency to do is they like to blame the lawyers, right? So business people like to say, I couldn't close this transaction because I discussed it with legal and legal won't let me do it. Um, and so, you know, it's also a self-preservation tactic to have that conversation with the business to say, I'm not standing in your way. I'm not telling you from a legal uh, standpoint that you can't do this. I may be telling them that there's a less risky approach but if you understand the risk, and again, what's important to me is that the client understands the risk without beating them over the head with it. But if they appreciate the risk and they're willing to take it, um, then it really is their decision. Um, and uh, But they have to own it. They have to own it. And they can't throw it back on the legal team to say, we didn't do it or it wasn't successful because you know legal advised me to or not to do. Yeah. I mean, I would only add to that, which is, you know, you didn't own it. So you use the word, which is one of my big issues is risk ownership. Mm -hmm. And that risk ownership has to stay with the business or has to stay with the area that creates the risk, right? And that really prevents what I think could be another whole podcast about, you know, um, outsourcing ethics <laughs> um, is a, a way to say that or not understanding, um, you know, where that line is. So the risk ownership is so important um, in the roles that it stays with the risk creator, right? Um, and that you can have that um, to make have those conversations like that to make sure that you don't have the outsource of ethics or you don't have, um, you know, the general counsel in charge of being run over by a bus. Um, so those two things are, are, are things to avoid. So there's another uh, commercial aspect to in-house, and this is um, is near and dear to my heart, um, having been on the flip side. So in-house have to manage external counsel. And I know that both of you have a lot of experience doing that. Um, I'm sure some terrific experiences and some that weren't so great. Um, I, in my experience as a, a general counsel or as an external counsel, I really love to hear that perspective of general counsel. Um, you know, what's useful to you? How do you like to be communicated with? How much information do you want? Um, I think all of that is so important. Um, what advice would you two give to legal and uh, compliance externals? Um, what do you wish that all of your external counsels knew? And Audrey, I'll, I'll throw this one to you first. Oh, I go. Okay, because I was going to say, Carrie goes first. She has more years in house than I do. Um, so she probably has better <laughs> stories. You can that. You, you know, uh, well, I, defer, I defer to Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it and then I'll go back. Um, things I wish, and I'll say it like this, because the things I wish I knew as well, right? Um, it is um, the operationalization of the law. So particularly from a CCO perspective, um, it's rarely that uh, in, in a mature company with mature legal function and compliance function, it's rarely that I'm going to reach out to an external counsel for basically treatise advice. Like, what is this law? Okay. Most of the time, understand that the questions that I'm asking or that in-house counselor asking are how do you operationalize that law or that issue to the business model, right. it goes back to yeah. knowing the business, which Carrie's talking about. Um, and then the other one I would talk about is around communications. Um, no, do not make me go fish is what I call it. Or don't make me, don't make me work for it. Um, just, you know, put, if you can, um, think about everything that you send me. Um, it might be an attachment as well, but 
everything you send me being able to read it on my iPhone, um, being able, you get extra credit points if there's a summary at the, be, at the beginning that I can cut and paste and use in, in my next briefing that I'm about to walk into in 15 minutes, right? Um, I want all the, all the um, detail about it. And I want to be able to methodically go, oh, you, you're, you know, your conclusion and your support is boom, boom, but then let me go down and see what all the details are. But it's incredibly important to me to have this. If I get something from you and I have to work it to pull all those things out, and then put together, you just cost me two hours, <laughs> or I put it to the side um, and come back to it. Um, so you can really become, you know, my trusted advisor if you can think about how you communicate in that way, um, so that not only I can get the bottom line, but I can go back in and find all the details that I want and your support for it. But I can also have that and make it easy, easily transferable to my client, right? As I'm working in that space. So those are the two things I would really think about operationalizing the legal advice and also thinking about how you communicate it in the easiest way for me to use it. Harry, what advice would you give to external counsel? I love this question because I think um, the relationship with outside counsel is crucial. Um, you know, companies have a lot of internal expertise, but they don't have expertise in every area. And there's some issues that no matter how much internal expertise you have, you, you need outside counsel to defend it, to protect you. So I, I really view that relationship as a partnership. And I agree with Audrey. I don't, I'm not looking for a law firm to sort of dictate to me what the law is or to dictate to me what to do. I want an open line of communication with the lawyers that I work with in, in, a, in a law firm about what the issues are, what the, what, and, and what the decision should be. And I think I may be mistaken, but I think most Law firms want their clients to make the decisions. They don't want to make the decisions for their clients. I know it happens in the reverse a lot, but I very much, I'm very comfortable making the decisions, but only when I understand the entire landscape. So here's the advice I would give, similar to what I give in, you know, an in-house lawyer, know your client and their business. Listen to them. Research them. So many law firms don't do that. They just dispense legal advice in a vacuum, but they don't, they don't have an aptitude or an understanding for why their client may be resisting the advice or not able to, you know, not, not able to understand the advice or, not, you know, what, what, whatever it is, because they're not listening to their client and they're not understanding the issues that their client is presenting to them. Um, develop a relationship of trust and loyalty with your client. Um, a client wants to know that when they're in the trenches with you, you have their back. You know, so don't give legal advice that's so risky that you're then kind of walk away from a client saying, oh, I told you not to do that. You know, go. That's what I mean by a partnership. Hold hands and work together with your client to navigate through through an issue. Right. Be proactive with your client. Anticipate the issues. You know, I'm not a dummy, but I can't think of everything. And so it, it's so it, it's so comforting for me when um, outside counsel calls and says, you know, I just want you to know I'm looking uh, a number of steps in advance. And I know we're not there yet, but I want to put this on your radar screen. I want to make sure we're thinking about A, B, and C. And that mm -hmm. gives me a lot of comfort knowing that I don't have to worry about missing a step because they're on it. They're focused on those issues, right? 
Um, be available to your client and responsive. It doesn't mean you have to pick up the phone the moment they call you or answer an email the moment it comes in your inbox, but don't wait a day either. Even if you can't, don't have time to really spend with them and be thoughtful with them within 24 hours, respond to them within that time frame and tell them, you know, you're going to reach out to them or understand what the issue is so that you understand whether it's a, you know, a time sensitive issue or can it wait? Can it wait a day? Because no client wants to feel like another client is more important to you than them. Um, care about cost and efficiencies because your client does. Your client cares a lot about that. So think about staffing and think about how much things are going to cost a client before you sort of foist a, 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 a staffing plan or a, a memo on them. And speaking about memo, I've totally got to jump on the Audrey boat because I... The way I want to be communicated with and the way I largely communicate is through bullet points, you know, an executive summary, right? Give me, just give me the high level, get, cover all the areas. I don't skip an important area, but I don't need pros and I don't need a nosebleed email that's going to go to the bottom of my inbox because I don't have the time to read it or really study it. And I'm smart enough usually to be able to read the bullet points and know what I don't know. And that's where I'll come back to you and say, I don't I have no idea what you're saying here. I don't understand this. Please explain it to me. Or I need a little more um, uh, meat on the bones on this bullet point, but I'm not going to criticize you for being too high level when I've asked for that, but please send me bullet points. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. I think I can hear the external counsel taking notes right now as you guys are <laughs> talking. This is all—it's such great practical advice. Audrey, well, go ahead. Bethany, I have to say because there's a, just two funny ones. Um, I definitely agree. And I think last podcast we talked about the three AM crisis. Like you have to be the counsel as an external that that you have you feel so comfortable with them, um, and has to feel so comfortable with you that you're somebody who they have you know on on their mobile phone and can call in those crisis situations. It's fine. But um, talking about in pitches because this is just um, too fun. Not doing your research. Um, I did once have an extra counsel who I didn't know is pitching um, something from another jurisdiction and had not done their research on who I was, or what my background was, and decided that um, their strategy was going to be to say, the real problem in this area is American FCPA counsel, externals. <laughs> they have created this themselves without, you know, um, it's not really the, the government, this area, it's these people. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> um, so obviously that person hadn't done their, um, you know, their research, but it's the same way even with, you know, do your research on the program that's coming in. I had some folks come in and pitch to do, you know, training where, you know, my particular um, company had a fantastic training, fantastic in-house was handling all that and certainly wasn't going to pay $1,200 an hour for a partner from an external to come in and do that. Um, but having that kind of research and the two things, um, ways that I think about what, what Carrie said is I think about when did I give people work that it wasn't something that I planned to. Um, when did I, when did someone new really come in? And it was when they actually told me something I didn't know. So you were talking about saying, I've got this, I'm working on this, this, and this. It's, hey, I'm seeing this happening with some of my other clients or around because you've got that great view, right? That benchmarking view. We're seeing this risk or this thing happening. How are you dealing with that? 
that's great information because it goes back to that scene around the corners kind of area um, that we talked about. The other thing is to do something better or more efficiently um, than, um, you know, I've done it. So you have a challenge, um, a legal challenge, other thing that you're always dealing with in compliance, but they're like, well, we found a new way or another way to more efficiently or more effectively deal with that. And those are those two different places where I found myself walking down the knee and go, that was super value add. Um, they'd done their research and they came in with those two things. And I would say that's when external counsel walked out with, you know, um, some type of work that maybe they wouldn't have um, prior to it. Because otherwise, sometimes those pitch meetings, um, you know, aren't, aren't that effective. No, and that's what, it's what Carrie said, too, about uh, helping internals see what they might not necessarily be seeing. Um, well, we only have a couple of minutes left. I want to wrap up here real quickly. Um, I'll throw it to you, Carrie, first. Two pieces of practical advice for legal and compliance programs that we haven't talked about yet. Um, I, I would say put your people first. You know, um, build a strong team. Uh, take the time to nurture and to develop them and to help them grow and to, and to succeed. Um, it's very rewarding in so many respects. You have you end up with a collaborative, um, happy team, and you end up with a team that's so much support for you and for each other. Um, and then I, this, I can't resist. It's something we spoke about, but I just think it's important again to to be focused on technology and 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 data. Uh, I think it's really important uh, to, to to focus in those areas. I'll say because it's a it's somewhat what cares about people, but it's um, really I think one of my biggest learnings is um, the the compliance, particularly in compliance, rather than just legal, but in compliance, um, the compliance personality. So uh, really hiring folks who are resilient and curious. Um, and there's a phrase that someone else uses that I will uh, copy here because I love it. Um, really hire for character, you can teach for skill. Um, and so some of the, it, you can see some great resumes out there, um, but really having a diverse group within your ethics and compliance. So folks from all kinds of different backgrounds, legal, audit, ethics, um, HR, transition management, and, but having the right thought process, that curiosity, that resilience, um, because Often what I would, and what I still as an external, ask people to go in and do is kind of anti-human um, nature. Um, someone writes you a, a business write to nasty email. I'm gonna, gonna, as CCO, ask my team to, you know, they're coming out at you with a metaphorical knife. I'm gonna ask you to open your arms up and give a hug. <laughs> How can I help you? Um, why, this is so uncharacteristic. Of, what's going on? How can I resolve this issue? And that takes a certain personality type um, to continue to do. Um, and also that they're okay with being what I call the unknown superhero. Um, so you may never know that um, you say, it, you know, that it was your advice or your work in this space that saved the company in XYZ situation. They rarely put that in a press release, right? Um, so you have to have people who feel really good about that. You have to also make sure you're the chief cheerleader or the chief compliance marketing officer uh, for that as well. Um, but that's what I would, I would say is like really focusing on your team and how you're putting that together 
But resumes are important, but more important, you know, hire for character, teach for skill in these spaces. And um, most of the time, you'll be pleasantly surprised with the results. Terrific. Well, that brings us to the end of our time. Thank you so much, Audrey and Carrie, for coming together for our inaugural Compliance Coffee Talk. I really hope it won't be our last, as I can see we have lots and lots to talk about. Um, thank you so much our, to our listeners for spending some of your day with us, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.